Welcome back to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. My name is Jue Love. I'm your host. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm very grateful to have our guest tonight. But before I introduce our guest, I want to introduce my book, which is A Gift from Adversity. A Gift from Adversity was published in 2020. And the top subtitle is Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying, and Homelessness. I published this book because I was doing a lot of motivational speech or speaker opportunities. And a lot of people asked me if I had a book, but I didn't. So it kind of motivated me to write a book. After I published my book, I had a lot of people reach out to me from many different places and told me that they are also a victim of child sex abuse, domestic violence, etc. And I felt very compelled to create a safe platform where people can talk solely about adversities and how they overcame the adversity and a gift that came from it. So let's introduce tonight's guest. His name is Dan Hodges. Dan, thank you so much for coming to A Gift from Adversity today. Thank you for having me. And thank you for putting so much love and you know support out into the world with your book and with this platform. It is so desperately needed. I appreciate that deeply. So Dan, before we start our main topic, would you introduce yourself? who you are, what you do, and if you have a website or social media. Yes, I would love to. So like you said, my name is Daniel Hodges. I am a recent law grad from the University of Baltimore about a year ago. And I am the co-founder of a couple of organizations. One is a nonprofit called Pieces of Me Foundation. That is P-E-A-C-E-S of me. We spell that that way for a reason. And the other is Pure Access Consultants, which is a for-profit consulting firm. And we can get into a little bit more about why I do that work later on in the broadcast. But suffice to say that I, I am here to help create a more accessible and inclusive world. That's where... We're trying to go with the social media and the websites, and I'll get you the links for anyone who wants to follow up. But yeah, that is about about what I do. And what are the social media handles? So my personal LinkedIn is Daniel Hodges JD, and you can find the social media stuff for both organizations at under either Pieces of Me Foundation for LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And you can also find Pure Access on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. So do you go by Dan or Daniel? Either one. Either one is okay. All right. So I'll go by Dan. Um, So let's actually start our first topic, which is adversity. So would you please tell our audience 
What was your adversity? So, from the outside, one would say that my adversity is having been born blind and also having a connective tissue disorder, which comes from chronic, you know, comes with chronic pain, anxiety, and such. But I would define it more as the sociological and environmental barriers that arrive from these conditions, not necessarily those characteristics themselves. Yes, thank you. Can you explain a little bit more about your disability? Um, you said it very fast and then I didn't really comprehend connective tissues, um, the blind. So you were born blind? Yes, and the best way to explain the connective tissue element is I've had some sort of bone or joint surgery in all four US time zones. So I had a lot of surgery, had a lot of bones, had more dislocations than I could even begin to count. Um, it's, it can be a struggle sometimes. That is really um, unimaginable and I was not born blind and I can see everything and I don't really understand the world of being blind and you said the social like social uh, I forgot the word that you said about social pressure or like what, yeah. what that comes so the best way I could explain that is you know I've gone out, I've gotten training and been able to feel comfortable and confident doing things as a blind person, but that doesn't mean that people who encounter me understand that. So there's pressure that comes from trying to be perfect in order to avoid people's misconceptions or negative beliefs about blindness. There's um, discrimination that occurs, you know, there's instances where, you know, for instance, when my daughter, my first kid was born, you know, we actually had to fight with the hospital to maintain custody based on our blindness, not based on anything we did as first time parents. We had checked all of the boxes, but there, disbelief about our capabilities was so great that there was literally nothing we could do to prove that we were capable of taking care of our child. So that, that's what I mean when I talk about the social barriers. Social barriers. What happened to your child? So we ended up um, being able to keep her and she was actually born with the same eye cancer that her mother had, and we were able to beat that as well. But there's this fragment of time in 2008 where literally on one hand, we're being scrutinized for being blind parents. And on the other, we're on the complete opposite end of the spectrum 
coordinating medical stuff, researching cancer treatments, doing all these things while I'm working full time overnight at a retail store. And just that, that disconnect between what we were actually doing and what people automatically assumed that we were capable of doing based off of one characteristic. I see. Well, thank you so much for explaining that. And growing up being blind, did you experience any bullying or any discrimination from other children in school? I did. Um, I definitely did. I experienced a lot of isolation as well. And, you know, even from the adults, they didn't have the tools or in some cases, even the curiosity for going out and figuring out how to teach me. They just basically let me sink or swim in a classroom that wasn't designed for somebody who had very limited vision. So, you know, there were times where it was literally my responsibility to figure out what they had written on the chalkboard or just be able to follow along. There were you know, textbooks I couldn't quite read. There was just a tremendous amount of difficulty trying to maintain my academic progress um, in, in a world where there just, there just wasn't any kind of equity. I cannot imagine how it is like to not be able to have enough aid growing up and trying to learn and you know i i don't know and just to let you know i'm from japan and japan um japanese society and culture that i know of it's changing definitely is when people have disability sometimes parents feel ashamed to even put the children out in the society and expose them because they are afraid of discrimination. Say, even like a wheelchair situations in America, there are a lot of ramps, a lot of like ways to get around in a wheelchair, but in Japan, not so much. And same goes to blind people in Japan. And like one of my college friends had service dog and she's Japanese, but you know, she was expressing it was very hard. So I don't know how it's like in America because I didn't grow up in this country. How did your parents um, kind of deal with this discrimination and um, social barriers? Did they like really encourage you to go out and then mingle and help you with that? So my parents went through a few stages. Um, I think at first there was perhaps a, almost a bit of disbelief, you know, on one hand, they were seeing that I was struggling with some tasks where I would hold things up to my eyes, but then they would take me into the eye doctors and the eye doctors would say, oh, that's just him, you know. He also rides a bike and certainly a kid who can barely see couldn't ride a bike and, <laughs> or so they thought. And um, 
you know, as, as I grew, we, you know, found out that yes, my retinas were indeed quite damaged and, um, you know, they would reach out where they could, but the support systems weren't really in place for them. And when they reached out to the medical community, everything was geared toward, well, you have to effectively keep him in a bubble in order to preserve what little retina you see has, you know, lest, you know, lest I end up with a damaged retina or a detached retina that would have cost the rest of my vision. Um, and then hope took the form of, well, maybe one day one of these hospitals will come up with a cure. And in the meantime, there's just not, you know, nothing we can do. So just, you know, don't really expect much and just let him live his life. And um, eventually after we had a surgery that went very sideways and after I got a little schooling from people who actually knew something about blindness and eventually ended up getting some training, you know, then we started to have a much different conversation expectations started to raise and I was able to go out and start actually competing and succeeding in things. But I mean, by the time we're, this is happening, this is in my late teens, early twenties before any of us is actually taking a turn for the better. So would you call like the isolation, like we all felt that during the pandemic, but growing up, not being able to see, and then, you know, how was your mental health? How would you describe now you are an adult, like looking back when you are a child, did you have any mental health help or language that you can put towards or were you isolated, confused with this discrimination? The pandemic interesting for me in that it actually did bring me back to my teenage years in a lot of ways, uh, where there was very distinct isolation, um, except for the fact that, you know, in the pandemic, I spent most of that time living alone and in a state where I had some friends but no family. So in that case, the isolation was even more severe. Um, but at the same time, during the pandemic, I was in my second and then third year of law school. I had the nonprofit up and running. I had some very distinct things that were giving me purpose and reinforcing my worth and my self-esteem so that was a tremendous blessing but you know circling back to um circling back to my days i really started to struggle with anxiety and depression when i was in my early teens and it took years before i was able to talk about it with anyone um, let alone seek real help. And then, you know, the process of 
getting help that was actually helpful um, was, you know, was even more extensive than that. But, you know, um, when you're conscious enough to realize that people are looking at you as though you're never going to reach whatever potential you may have had absent blindness and you can tell all that even when you dream of accomplishing something or set out your plans for the future that generally people don't believe you they just assume you're just trying to cope you're not actually going to go anywhere with your life um it's tremendously difficult to have that be your default environment and not give in to that belief yourself. At some point, human nature dictates that you start absorbing those negative beliefs and the gifts that you can point toward start to become less and less visible as the doubts that keep getting reinforced become more and more evident and more and more reinforced. You know, Dan, listening to you, it just breaks my heart because now you're an adult and then you have these languages to put towards what happened to you and especially growing up. And then having this, you know, isolation, discrimination, and the people like not really believing your ability as a whole. It just, um, I can't imagine. And I'm not in a place to even like speak about it, but I'm really grateful that you came today to share what you went through. And you're the first um, guest uh, who is blind and talk about this adversity. And I can't thank you enough for being brave to open up to me and to our audience um, about this disability because I think a lot of discrimination comes from fear and not knowing what it feels like. So <clears throat> I'm actually a journalist and then I'm covering a story about wheelchair um, in a couple of weeks. I live in Foxborough, Massachusetts, and there's a city like 20 minutes away, Attleboro. So they decided to um, open the roads and have wheelchair and then have able people come on a wheelchair and then have a mile wheelchair kind of ride together to understand what people who are born or wheelchair bound or be on a wheelchair understand what's the struggle. And if for the blindness, I really think sometimes that if we even experience one day and just cover our eye vision and just experience that alone, I think it would really 
give us a chance to understand how people with no sight uh, feel like and be able to move forward. But again, like growing up, I just feel like I could go back and then help you with the school system and, you know, in a way that this is so important conversation to me because I really want to understand every aspect of different kind of adversity that people go through. And then our audience also, your story is very precious and very valid that, you know, people understand more then I think the discrimination would fade away, hopefully, even like one person level, right? Um, I think there are some really important takeaways there too. I mean, you know, with regard to, you know, especially my parents, you know, we've had some really and my dad, you know, before he passed away many years ago, and even my mom, who is, you know, lets me know how proud she is of everything I am still doing. You know, it was never, um, it was never a lack of love or anything malicious. It was always, you know, a lack of resources it was it was a it was a systemic problem that just caught me up in a spiral and i think it's it's important to recognize that and address it as such and the other thing you know if you were to say put on a blindfold and you know you would maybe encounter some of the obstacles but really the things that are related to vision loss the considerations take a relatively minor role in this whole landscape i mean it is true if i walk out my door to my apartment right now the signage on the walls isn't brailled, you know, so I can't, for instance, tell necessarily what apartment numbers I'm passing or, you know, may or may not be able to tell non-visually where the trash chute is, that sort of thing. But I've learned how to get around those barriers, you know, so imagine going into a building sign. Okay, that's my reality. But holes and there's tips and tricks to learn how to deal with that reality. Um, you learn how to navigate, you learn how to use your other senses to discern what's in your environment. You learn how to use technology to level the playing field. What wouldn't be evident in a simulation is the difference in how people are treated. Um, there's a distinct 
difference in even somebody like myself who's graduated law school. The prestige that that carries with it, but yet I am blind. But yet, because of my you know orthopedic and joint issues, I walk a little differently. And so, you know, there are there are ways that people talk to me, even out in the even just out in the general public, that are different based off of what is visible, versus someone who doesn't have that going on. It's, really where we have to do a better job of, like you said, building empathy and getting communication out there and really getting people understanding what that fear, because once that happens, then you're right. Discrimination does, you know, it does significantly decrease. Thank you so much for sharing that. So let's move on to our next question, which is the tools that you use to overcome. So I love this part of the podcast because a lot of people like, so for instance, for instance, my case, having this extreme adversity of child sex abuse, domestic violence, bullying, homelessness, like people will say, oh, just go get a counselor you're having a panic panic attack but that's not just it and doing this podcast then i've learned so many different techniques from general guests who share their stories in the adversities but unique tools that they use to overcome their challenges have been helping me and have been helping other audience as well so then if you can please share our audience what are the tools that was very helpful, beneficial to overcome your adversity? One of the best things I ever learned from therapy was a therapist that was incredible and understood this from his own life. He said, well, the best thing you can do for your mental health is go out and serve others. And so that's, to me the core of all of these other things. Um, I think who we surround ourselves with matters immensely. Not only who are there and, you know, get us, but people who, while understanding the challenges that we are going through, are not content to let us stay where we are. Um, my closest friends are generally people who I feel like I am constantly growing with. And I feel like they are also people who maybe they don't have the same purpose as I do, but they have their own purpose that I support and they deeply support my purpose. So for instance, you know, you and I do different kinds of work within trauma and within overcoming adversity and such. You serve what might be considered to be a different audience, but where we connect is we 
both have a passion for helping people redefine their identities and reclaim their identities. And so I think those things, as well as, you know, for me, faith is a big one. And just being able to tell myself, if I deal with, if I can process my pain, whether it be, you know, psychological or real, or, or psychologically or physical or a combination of both, pain that day. If I can find a way to push through it, health, and I have the potential to brighten someone as a real return on that effort. And being able to focus on that and incredibly helpful for me. Let's talk about the nonprofit that you started a little bit. I know you mentioned that earlier. So the purpose that you mentioned, and then you're right, I started a nonprofit when I was 26 and I ran it for 12 years, serving juvenile offenders in education programs, teaching music, providing so, uh, lessons. So the nonprofit was started um, while I was in between my first and second year of law school, I was um, rebounding from a fairly significant mental health crisis. In some ways, I was actually in crisis. And I was having a conversation with my cousin about the people who we saw were falling through the cracks with various kinds of disabilities, chronic illnesses, of whatever nature. And I said, Christy, um, I think we can do something about this. And I think the time is now. Would you be interested in starting a nonprofit with me? And fortunately, she thought about it for a minute. And she's like, sure. And like, okay, just so you're aware, this is what I plan to do. This is the scale um, that I plan to take this to. Are, are you, you sure you're right? She's like, yeah, I'm like, okay, let's go do this then. And so I spent the last two years of law school doing class by day, as it were, and doing the nonprofit by night, you know, setting up the board setting up all the different infrastructure, the legal paper, you know, getting the legal paperwork coordinated, all of that fun stuff. Um, and that was also during a time where I had two surgeries, had a major inflammatory attack in my hand and wrist and really had to fight through it. But again, there was this, this, feeling that was ever present of I'm doing this for a purpose. These challenges are coming so that I can be an even better advocate and can go out and talk about how I deal with my pain so that hopefully I can add to 
the course of people who are telling others, if you're in pain, if you're being told your best days are behind you, here are here is a message that can hopefully be part of your hope solution. You know, my story alone isn't going to give someone the hope that they need, but hopefully my story will add to whatever that is presented to an individual and will help them go out and figure out that their best days are actually ahead of them. And so we are a 501c3 that we brand ourselves as a community where everyone can thrive regardless of their characteristics. Our mission is to erase the stigma surrounding disability and chronic illness. We do that through creating and facilitating conversations, real conversations where people check their egos and their pride at the door and just talk and connect with one another and learn. Because again, that's how we get past discrimination and misconceptions. And that's how we create opportunity. That's how we facilitate hope. And so we do monthly events right now. We have conversations, real conversations on our social media. And it is just an incredible blessing because I have the ability to I have the ability to see real change happening one by one in people's lives. And I have the ability to do work that is incredibly fulfilling and helps me take my mind off of my own pain and struggles and put it on to the kind of positive change that we are in the process of making. So the clients that you have through the nonprofit, are they all over the world? Like, you know, how do they reach out to you, like through social media? And then what are the feedbacks so far? Yeah. Um, so we have a following all over the world. Um, you know, we have a team that is spread all throughout the United States. And, you know, we really welcome people to come in from different cultures, different backgrounds, different circumstances, because that's where we learn from one another. Um, and so definitely we, we hope people will find us on social or reach out to us through our website and, you know, just be part of this community and help us, you know, keep that virtuous circle moving forward. Amen. Um, say your website again so people can check it out. So it is Pieces of Me, and that's P-E-A-C-E-S, piecesofme.org. P-E-A-C-E-S. So thank you so much for um, sharing that. As far as the technolo technology goes to help people uh, who are blind, what are the best technology that you encountered to help navigate your daily life? Um, you know, the biggest thing that has helped me with my professionally is the fact that Apple 
kind of regard to making its devices come standard with accessibility tools in them. So if you get into a store and pick up an iPad or an iPhone, and other accessibility features built in off the shelf. So um, I mentioned to you earlier how difficult it was to you know, read my textbooks and stuff in school. And the difference is when I was a child and teen, I would struggle to read a page or two at a time and was on the fringes of being illiterate. And with my iPad now, um, provided that the book has been uploaded properly, you know, I've been able to make it through law textbooks and all sorts of other things and maintain a real level of comprehension. And so that's, you know, my body didn't necessarily change the technology and the attitude and the opportunities changed. Wonderful. And then did the low school teachers, professors, like staffs, they, were they helpful to you? They were. And, you know, I had several who would start off the semester by saying, I've never had a blind student, but I hope that you will communicate what you need to me. And I look forward to learning how to do this better. And they were exceptional professors, especially the ones who either you know, came into it having that level of knowledge or being eager to gain that level of knowledge. They were just exceptional. And they maybe they would teach something a little differently as far as making sure that I had the PowerPoint slides or making sure that what they put on the whiteboard was read aloud, but important to note here, they did not, nor did I want them, the standards. The standards I had to meet in order to graduate were exactly the same as every other student, slightly differently it was incredibly necessary for us to make sure that the standards were held high and they were. That's wonderful to know that the professors were eager to help you and learn and grow together. So then maybe in the future, if they have students again who are blind, that they are better prepared. And then I'm very happy about the Apple um, and technology that has been a crucial tools in helping you. And it's really incredible. I have a friend who's deaf, and then they have this translator of sign language that would make a voice. And then the voice would um, translate visually to a sign language, and that's how they communicate. And those technology weren't available before. So, yeah. you know, as the technology grow, you know, I hope there will be more tools available. But thank you so much for sharing that. So then my last question is a gift that came from your adversity. So how would you describe 
a gift that came from your adversity? I think the biggest gift that comes from it is much more conscience, conscious of the different experience that people have otherwise been. And again, I, I have the opportunity to do work that I find to be incredibly. I am reminded constantly makes a real impact that I love doing. I mean, I feel like in a way the poster child for the person who, even if I work 12 hours that day, I don't feel like I've actually worked because it is so enriching. And would I have that if I would have been born with eyesight and with working joints? Maybe, but probably not. I think I think being born this way and being able to embrace those characteristics and and yes, it's still a process to embracing than I a year from now than I am now. But nevertheless, being able to go on that journey has helped me be more empathetic, be more conscientious of the myriad different experiences people encounter and has led to a lot more peace in my life and a lot more fulfillment. Thank you very much for sharing that. And then I'm very happy that um, you came to my podcast. Um, this has been my vision and manifestation that I had no idea how many guests would come on my show. And having this conversation is very important to me. And just to let you know um, and the audience know, I believe in change can come from one conversation, one encounter, one in individual. When I was working as a president and founder of nonprofit Genuine Voices, I was really feeling big to change the world through our work. But then the probation officer who was a board member told me, Jiri, you need to focus on changing one youth at a time because when you can change one youth and then when they go back to the community from the detention program, the change that you made, they will bring it to the community and they would create a ripple effect of the positivity. So you have to start somewhere. And I believe in change by even doing this podcast, like what you said, writing my book. And it's been incredible opportunity. For instance, I had a guest from New Zealand who got injured at 25 years old and past 20, last 27 years that he's been on wheelchair and he shared his story with us. And then there's a, 
a person who listened to the podcast in America reached out to me and he said he wants to share his story as well. So, and it, that conversation really inspired him. So who knows how many people can get something out of our conversation. And that is why I really appreciate you sharing your perspective and your life experience on our podcast. My last request from you, if there's somebody who's listening to this podcast who's blind and then going through this joint pain, connective tissue issues, like what is your biggest advice that you can give to that specific adversity? I think this relates to any kind of disability, chronic pain, mental health challenge, because regardless of the physical or mental characteristic, so much of what we experience is outside of our bodies as far as the challenges we face. And my advice is figure out what your zone of genius is. What are you exceptional at? Because I promise you there's something. Where is your passion? Where is your genius? Go find yourself people who are able to look past whatever characteristics society thinks is going to hold you down. Find yourself people who can connect with you and can help you get to that next stage. And never buy in to one or even a handful of characteristics define you or your potential. They don't. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you. And it's been very wonderful getting to know you. And then you inspire me. And uh, I really like what you said about find your genius. And I really like what you said about surround yourself with positive people. And then, you know, just people who can look at you beyond your characteristics. And then I, I, I really like that. And I feel some of the human beings are able to connect with each other at soul level, not like physical appearance. And I believe in this kind of soul connections and being able to leverage somebody's life, even if it's one conversation or one encounter. And I'm very intentional about that. And I'm sure you are too. And then I appreciate you creating the nonprofit and reaching out to a lot of people. And trust me, Dan, I've done this work for 12 years. Years later, even like 20 years ago when I started my first music program, actually 2001, so 21 years ago, it's still going and it's still serving the community. And I met a boy who started music lesson at a program that I started in 2001, now being an adult and appreciated me for starting the program. So believing the power of generation change too, because right now you don't see it, but I've seen it. I've seen generational change 
in the community of the vision that you put in and always be intentional and go for, go after systematic change like you said. And then you are now an attorney and then gain so much credentials and knowledge and yet you're willing to help other people. That's very empowering. So I admire you for that and I encourage you will keep going and keep helping other people and then keep helping yourself. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in to A Gift from Adversity episode 64. My name is Jay Love and I have more guests coming in and looking forward to more conversations. Thank you again. Thank you.